DiscerningHearts.com presents The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the director of the Center for Faith and Culture and writer-in-residence at Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a renowned biographer whose works include his own autobiography as well as books on the lives of Father Ho Lang, William Shakespeare, J.R.R. Tolkien, L.R. Belloc, G.K. Chesterton, and numerous others. He's the recipient of an honorary doctorate of higher education from Thomas More College for the Liberal Arts and has also received the Pollock Award for Christian Biography. He is the co-editor of the St. Austin Review and has hosted two series on Shakespeare for EWTN as well as hosting several EWTN productions on J.R.R. Tolkien. The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. In true Faustian tradition, the picture of Dorian Gray tells the tale of a young man who sells his soul to the devil in return for youthful immortality, only to discover that the devil's bargain is no bargain at all. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? When Dorian Gray is asked this question, he knows the answer. He has learned the lesson the hard way and has added the destroyed lives of others into the bargain. The moral is inescapable, making the picture of Dorian Gray more than merely a classic of Victorian literature. It is a classic of Christian literature. Joseph Pierce can speak about the heart and mind of Oscar Wilde in a unique way. He is the author of The Unmasking of Oscar Wilde. We now begin our discussion on the life, the times, the work of Oscar Wilde, and the picture of Dorian Gray. Let's talk about Oscar Wilde, a larger-than-life character, but actually a flesh-and-blood man who you know very well, having been a biographer of his. Well, yes. I mean, that man who paradoxically is defined not only by his greatness, but by his weakness. And I think that's one of the uh, paradoxical secrets of what makes Oscar Wilde great. And also what makes his life so fascinating is such so much of a lesson for all of us is that, you know, that if we allow our weakness to define us, then we're going to be in trouble. For those who are unfamiliar with him and his work, The Picture of Dorian Gray, why don't you give us an overview of who Oscar Wilde is? Well, Oscar Wilde, a Protestant Irishman, born in Dublin in 1854, and did undergraduate work, uh, first of all in Dublin, and then went on to Oxford. During his time at Dublin, Trinity College Dublin, and then at uh, Magdalen College Oxford, he fell under the influence of the Catholic Church and was very um, close to converting uh, as an undergraduate. And it was only threats of his father threatening to disinherit him that stopped him from doing so. And this begins a lifelong love affair between uh, Oscar Wilde and, and the Catholic Church. Of course, the Catholic Church is always faithful to Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde is not always faithful to the Catholic Church. And he's as unfaithful to her, the Church, as he ultimately will be to his wife and to his family, again, being defined by his weaknesses. But through his life, he becomes famous, first of all, as, ironically, the editor of a woman's magazine, becomes a great wit, and he sought out dinner parties for his wit and, I suppose, worldly wisdom. Wrote some wonderful children's stories that are some of the absolute classics of children's literature. Became arguably the greatest playwright of the Victorian period. Wrote some wonderful comedies. And then wrote one novel, which is the one that we've published in the Ignatius Critical Editions, 
the picture of Dorian Gray, which I, I think is really one of the, the, the classics of Victorian fiction in an age which is, again, perhaps the golden age of the English novel. To be up there amongst the illustrissimi and amongst the most illustrious ones is indeed an accolade. And I think it's a great, great novel. And then uh, Oscar Wilde had his famous downfall of a, a homosexual scandal in uh, the middle of the uh, 1890s, 1895. He spent two years in prison uh, and when he came out, lived for a further three years uh, in decreasing health and was received into the Catholic Church on his deathbed in 1900, which is really the consummation of that lifelong love affair to which I referred. The Victorian period is an important one for us to understand because it's a, a time of great paradoxes and a surface behavior, but then also something running under the current below. Yeah, it's actually in many ways a very secular age uh, and not as different from our ages as, as we sometimes think it is because there was a crisis of faith. There was a growth of modernism in the Anglican Church where the core beliefs of Christianity were being questioned. There were major changes technologically in society and demographically in, in society. So cities were growing huge almost overnight in the early part of the 19th century. Britain, of course, as a, as a global power, came to the zenith of its power at the end of the 19th century with, uh, I think, at one stage, one third of the land area of the world being part of the British Empire. Perhaps the epitome of that would be Queen Victoria being named Empress of India um, in the 1880s. So Wilde is writing at this time where, uh, on the one hand, English political power and its cultural hegemony is sort of seen to be supreme, but where its core beliefs, the Christianity which made the culture, is being questioned and undermined. And in the midst of all this, we see the Catholic revival, which you know, begins in earnest with the conversion of Newman in 1845. Newman's a major influence on Oscar Wilde throughout Wilde's life. And it's that Catholic revival which is informing Wilde's reaction against the modernity, which he's quite clearly uncomfortable with. When we talk about the circles he traveled with, he wasn't necessarily one who would rub elbows normally with those in royal society, but yet because of his fame and because of his wit, he became someone being sought out for those social occasions. You can't underscore the importance of those interactions. Yeah, Wilde was also very much a societal snob and a social climber, and he made a point of nurturing those friendships which would assist him in the upward mobility so that in the end, yes, he was certainly acquainted with the Prince of Wales and was flirting with the Prince of Wales' girlfriend and known famous actresses. This was his main, if you like, ambition in life. It's very much a worldly ambition was to just be successful, to be famous, to be a celebrity. And he was all of those things. And again, it's something in Wilde's life which very much parallels the problems we have today because, of course, this fame and celebrity did not bring him contentment. And as undermining all of this worldly success was a spiritual corruption and a spiritual longing, a sin and cynicism battling against a recurring love for Christ and for his church and it's this conflict between the two that really informs Wilde's greatest work and most particularly the picture of Dorian Gray. That would be where I would see that mirror image where on one side you see the societal figure but then on the undercurrent of the one who's struggling with that experience of Christ and the demands of that Christianity, there is that great paradox that would end up bringing 
us the picture of Dorian Gray. Absolutely, because, you know, Wilde was uh, affected by, one might even say infected by certain decadent writers of his time, um, such as Walter Pater, who sort of taught that life's all about experiencing the moment, getting the most you can get out of the moment. And novels by the French decadent, you know, Horace Cole Huisman's. So on the one hand, he wants to experience life to the full in this very sensual, sexual way. But on the other hand, he knows that the deeper elements of truth reside in religion and in faith uh, and in teach the teachings and life of Christ and the demands that places upon us as regards virtue and restraint. So it's this conflict between the two, which is why in the picture of Dorian Gray, all the three main protagonists can be seen as different aspects of Wilde's own character. Now, Basil Hallward's the artist who lives for his art. And insofar as he idolizes his art, he sees it as idolatry and a failure but for the most part it's a fairly sympathetically drawn character and then you have Lord Henry Wotton who is the society uh, cynic the wit who's the life and soul of dinner parties and again this is wild the uh, the bon viveur wild the one who gives the bon mot the, the, the witticisms and then you have Dorian Gray himself who is torn between his affections for both these characters and ultimately uh, because his vanity is preened by the cynicism of Lord Henry Wotton, sells his soul to the devil for uh, immortal life, and in consequence, of course, ultimately destroys the lives of everybody he touches. Everything he touches turns to corruption, including, of course, his own life, and that's reflected back to him by the picture. On several occasions, he comes very close to conversion, and in the end decides that if he can just get rid of the picture, which is his conscience, then he'll live happily. And of course, you know, the, the, the ultimate moral of the novel is if you, when you kill your conscience, you kill yourself, you kill your soul. If you kill your soul, you kill the very essence of yourself. So, you know, a profoundly Christian work showing that where the life of decadence leads, which is to destruction of not just yourself, but everybody else around you, including the innocent. The picture of Dorian Gray is one that when you look at the 20th century, that illusory type of a persona, we see that we could say played out in modern celebrity. And what happens after several generations in their lives of how it's almost a Dorian Gray experience. Absolutely. And the reflection in the picture, which is, of course, the mirror of his soul, doesn't matter how beautifully he looks on the outside, he's becoming corrupted on the inside. So it doesn't matter how much plastic surgery we have, how much cosmetic surgery we have. First of all, we're going to die. Many of the great works of literature are memento moris. They point us to the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. The picture of Dorian Gray certainly does that. It shows that, okay, well, you sell your soul to the devil. You might live for a long while. You might maintain your good looks. It might allow you to seduce people. But ultimately, it's going to destroy you and everybody, everything you touch. Why would a reader enter into the story? Because the characters are so really unlikable. Well, they are, actually. I think that's true. There are very few likable characters in the whole work, except perhaps the most naive, that sort of seem to be protected from the cynicism by their own innocence. But the most important th- reason we read it, I think, is for the lessons it can teach us about the nature and reality of evil. All of us are at least tempted to evil, prone to concupiscence. So, you know, there but for the grace of God go we. So that being so, we can't afford to be so blasé and say, well, I don't need to learn these lessons. I think sh- holding the mirror up to ourselves and showing, you know, what does an evil life lead to? Where does it lead? 
those are lessons we should learn. And the other thing about it as well, we should just say on a purely aesthetic level, Wald would approve. It's a great work of literature, very well written, a great story, very little extraneous material. They're really great novels. The Brides Have Revisited would be another example. It's not a word or a sentence out of place. Many other novels, I mean, we mentioned Frankenstein, Dracula. There's lots of superfluous stuff, which quite frankly is not particularly necessary to the plot. And a good editor could have got rid of several dozen pages without actually impacting the quality of the work itself. Mm-hmm. You can't do that with the picture drawing great because every sentence is where it should be. So in, in that sense, also, it's just a great work of literature. It deserves to be read for that alone. That, again, is one of the important factors in the Ignatian critical editions. Because having the introduction, having the essays, understanding Wilde as a true figure who, in essence, experienced this himself in some ways, that makes all the difference. Absolutely. And we need to know why and how does Wilde see the things that he sees through these protagonists, through these three characters. This brings the work to life for us, brings it into the fullness of life so there's more dimensions to it than there would be otherwise otherwise we're reading the work and we might enjoy it we might not enjoy it but we're not really understanding it and if we're not really understanding it we're not doing it justice and again you know i say this over and again that if you went to school and in your first week at school you told the teacher you, you didn't need to learn anything you knew everything you need to know already everyone would quite rightly say well you're stupid and you're not going to learn but we seem to approach literature as if we can do that as if you know just by reading it ourselves without the guidance of knowing as much about Oscar Wilde as possible so we can see the work as far as possible through Oscar Wilde's life and ideas and his theology and his philosophy and his sinfulness and his weakness all these things about him which really make the man and the work up to a point is always an incarnation of the man so without doing that we are leaving ourselves so sadly blind to the real depth that these great works can offer us The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde Chapter 13 Dorian rose from the piano and passed his hand through his hair. Yes, life has been exquisite, he murmured. But I'm not going to have the same life, Harry. And you must not say these extravagant things to me. You don't know everything about me. I think that if you did, even you would turn from me. You laugh. Don't laugh. Why have you stopped playing, Dorian? Go back and play the nocturne over again. Look at that great honey-colored moon that hangs in the dusky air. She's waiting for you to charm her. And if you play, she will come closer to the earth. You won't? Let us go to the club, then. It has been a charming evening, and we must end it charmingly. There is someone who wants immensely to know you. Young Lord Poole, Bournemouth's eldest son. He has already copied your neckties and has begged me to introduce him to you. He is quite delightful and rather reminds me of you. I hope not, said Dorian with a touch of pathos in his voice. But I am tired tonight, Harry. I won't go to the club. It is nearly eleven, and I want to go to bed early. Do stay. You have never played so well as tonight. There was something in your touch that was wonderful. It had more expression than I have ever heard from it before. It is because I am going to be good, he answered, smiling. I am a little changed already. 
Don't change, Dorian. At any rate, don't change to me. We must always be friends. Yet you poisoned me with a book once. I should not forgive you that. Harry, promise me that you will never lend that book to anyone. It does harm. My dear boy, you are really beginning to moralize. You will soon be going about warning people against all the sins of which you have grown tired. You're much too delightful to do that. Besides, it is no use. You and I are what we are, and will be what we will be. Come round tomorrow. I'm going to ride at eleven, and we might go together. The park is quite lovely now. I don't think there have been such lilacs since the year I met you. Very well. I will be here at eleven, said Dorian. Good night, Harry. As he reached the door, he hesitated for a moment, as if he had something more to say. Then he sighed and went out. It was a lovely night, so warm that he threw his coat over his arm, and did not even put his silk scarf round his throat. As he strolled home, smoking a cigarette, two young men in evening dress passed him. He heard one of them whisper to the other, That is Dorian Gray. He remembered how pleased he used to be when he was pointed out, or stared at, or talked about. He was tired of hearing his own name now. Half the charm of the little village where he had been so often lately was that no one knew who he was. He had told the girl whom he had made love him that he was poor, and she had believed him. He had told her once that he was wicked, and she had laughed at him, and told him that wicked people were always very old and very ugly. What a laugh she had, just like a thrush singing. And how pretty she had been in her cotton dresses and her large hats. She knew nothing, and she had everything that he had lost. When he reached home, he found his servant waiting up for him. He sent him to bed and threw himself down on the sofa in the library and began to think over some of the things that Lord Henry had said to him. Was it really true that one could never change? He felt a wild longing for the unstained purity of his boyhood, his rose-white boyhood, as Lord Henry had once called it. He knew that he had tarnished himself, filled his mind with corruption, and given horror to his fancy, that he had been an evil influence to others, and had experienced a terrible joy in being so, and that of the lives that had crossed his own it had been the fairest and most full of promise that he had brought to shame. But was it all irretrievable? Was there no hope for him? It is about conversion. That's something that keeps coming up over and over again in the, these great works. It's the conversion of the soul, or lack thereof, if one does not turn. In this case, Dorian Gray did not turn. I mean, no, towards but, Christ. But Basil Hallward, uh, you know, in a very, very powerful scene towards the end of the, the work, you know, says, you know, it's not too late. Now, let's pray. You know, I've been punished by my idolizing my art and idolizing you through my art too much. Uh, this I, I paid for. You also, you know, have paid a dreadful price, but we can pray, we can be forgiven. And it's not the only mm-hmm. occasion, but there are occasions in the novel where Dorian Gray gets the opportunity to repent and very nearly does. And in fact, temporarily on one or two occasions, does. 
But in mm-hmm. each time, it's his weakness that leads him back into the life of sin. But the lesson at the end, of course, is where that leads. The lesson of Wilde's life, thankfully, is that he is given the grace to be received into the church on his deathbed. And I guess that brings home the, the value of reading good literature, especially something like this, because it allows you to practice the virtues so that we may never have those moments to practice learning to accept grace when it is offered to us unless we've practiced it out in reading about it and saying, well, if I were in this situation, this is what hopefully how I would react. Well, that, exactly. We learn from life. And great literature is not an escape from life. Great literature is merely a reflection of life. So in other words, we, we can learn perhaps how we live through life by seeing the example of physical people we know, you know, our parents, our friends, our siblings. And of course, we learn lessons from them. They do bad things and it has consequences we learn. They do good things that has consequences we learn. But what literature allows us to do is to enter loads of other lives as well. So we, we don't just have the one life, our own, to teach us. We can have the lives of hundreds of other characters and people in literature with all the lessons they can teach us it just allows us to see far more learn far more and and therefore grow far more than we'd be able to otherwise and for the picture of dorian gray especially in our world where there is this offer of or clamor for perpetual youth is it really something can we see it for really what it is yeah, I think that the picture of Dorian Gray does speak very powerfully to our own age because, as you say, there's this cult of youth where people don't want to grow up at all. And there's also the sort of the propaganda of the secular decadent age in which we live that you know, do what you like, do what you feel like. You know, life is really about just enjoying the moment. All of the temptations that are dealt with and discussed and ultimately shown to be fallacious uh, in the picture of Dorian Gray are all temptations that are being held out in front of people today stay young and one way you stay young apart from cosmetic surgery and drugs that's supposed to keep you young is to enjoy yourself do whatever you want to do to be as reckless as you like behave now the same way you did when you were 15 and of course that's exactly what the picture drawing gray is talking about what happens when you pursue that logic when you pursue that logic you destroy yourself you destroy everything else you touch you destroy society you destroy the innocent the path of least resistance leads to hell, but it leads to hell before we get there, if you see what I mean, because it turns our very lives into hell on the way to hell. It turns the lives of others into hell on the way to hell. And that's what the picture drawing Gray teaches us, that a decadent lifestyle does not lead to contentment. It's almost as if the moment of sensual pleasure that you're going for next is the drug that you're addicted to. It's like the next heroin shot. Okay, well, you might feel better for a few moments immediately afterwards, but believe me, you're going to feel even worse than you did the day before because you did it. Yeah, the deals we make with the devil may not be as overtly as actually speaking directly to him and signing a contract or something at that point. But we do know by the choices that we make, whether it is something that is a virtuous choice or something that is evil and harms someone else. Yeah, actually, the way the moment of Dorian Gray's selling himself to the devil in the novel is very subtle. I mean, he doesn't sign a contract. It's not like, you know, mm-hmm. Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. He's tempted. The picture's going to stay young and you're going to grow old. And he just sort of throws himself down on the sofa and says, if only it were the other way around. If only the picture grew old, I would stay young. I would give everything for that. I would give my soul for that. And he says whether this was a prayer or not. He keeps the whole thing, thing very subtle. But there's a conscious decision at this point mm-hmm. that that's something that he would give his soul for. And he gets what he wants. Of course, what he wants is something which he wished he didn't have. 
Yeah, it makes us take a look at our own lives and the desires that we have, and that they do have consequences, because that's what's in the heart. That is what is deep with inside of us. And that's the kind of conflict that ate away, I think, at Oscar Wilde, because he had that struggle between the two. It's the choice between making a daily sacrifice of what you want, what you desire daily for a greater happiness a greater joy which is not the same as transient pleasure and that battle between the desire for transient pleasure and the desire for a joy that not only can transient pleasure not bring but actually prevents you from getting that joy as i said that wild was defined by his weakness that the easier path was always to take the next temptation and the result of that of course he had a very sad and tragic life and he paints that picture in the picture of Dorian Gray and and shows that the path of least resistance does not lead to happiness. It actually leads to to desolation, ultimately despair. It strikes me that in in many of the works for the Ignatius Critical Edition, that the authors and their works, while they are fiction, they are literature fiction, they are in some ways a biography of their hearts, that it is through those fictional words, they're actually describing it in actuality of their own experience. Yeah, especially in, should we say, for want of a better word, romantic or aesthetic works. Oscar Wilde's philosophy was largely one which embraced emotion and feeling. He obviously embraced also the ideas of John Henry Newman, which was certainly was incredibly rational. But in those, yes, of course, you're expressing what happens if I allow myself to pursue this desire, this feeling, where does it lead me? A very subjective experience. I mean, we were discussing Jane Austen. I think Jane Austen is uh, more subtle than that. Also, living our lives in accordance with correct reason is also a path to virtue and therefore to to happiness. So therefore pursuing sensibility over sense or feeling over faith or reason is not the path to contentment. And I think that was also something else that Oscar Wilde, because of his philosophy of aestheticism, didn't always get right. And that was another part of the philosophical problem that led to his downfall. Ultimately, it goes back to fear for Dorian Gray in that he would lose his looks, that he would lose that moment in time where he was content with who he was and that there would be another moment. For Oscar Wilde, same type of fear, yes? Well, yes, absolutely. He loved celebrity. Where he was was where, in a worldly sense, he wanted to be. And to embrace Catholicism would, first of all, led to his being disinherited by his father. And worldly riches, the comforts of the world, were something which attracted Oscar Wilde very much. So the practical sacrifices, and also to be a Catholic in Victorian England was frowned upon still. When John Henry Newman and Jeremy Hopkins and these Victorian converts suffered a great deal for their conversions. And Oscar Wilde, again, the choice was, do I embrace suffering by following where my heart and my head ultimately lead, which is towards the church? This is what I believe in at my deepest level, which you can see in Oscar Wilde's art all the time, this deeper level of understanding. Or do I just enjoy the comforts that I've accrued to myself through this worldly fame and and celebrity and the friends I have, you know, many of whom I might lose? And he chooses that easier path. And that is a great part of his tragedy. Uh, The picture of Dorian Gray really is his warning signal. Absolutely. And so the wonderful thing, you know, in Wald's life, the happy ending is his reception into the church but in his art ultimately it's the christianity that emerges in children's stories such as the selfish giant which is just a profoundly christian moral tale and then this cautionary tale this cautionary tale of the picture dorian gray is you know if you follow vanity 
this is where it leads. And uh, that is a, a, you know, a timeless lesson. The Picador in Grey is one of the most powerful moral works of the 19th century, even though it was considered immoral by some people at, at its time. Fascinating. You've been listening to Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.